Welcome to the Basto Podcast, conversations with big thinkers about the big questions in education and leadership today. I'm Angela Scafidi. Richard Gerver's career is one characterised by change. He's been an actor, a copywriter, a real estate agent, a teacher and an award-winning principal. He's now an international speaker, best-selling author and world-renowned thinker. Richard draws on his experiences in education and other fields to explore the links between great leadership, human potential, change and innovation. He has been described as one of the most inspirational leaders of his generation and we're delighted to be speaking with him today. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. So, Richard, you've had quite a varied career. Um, What led you to education and to the work that you're doing these days? I wish I could start off by giving you some really deep story about what led me to education that, you know, sort of at eight years old or something, I saw the light and just desperately needed to be a teacher. But I'm going to tell you the truth. Really, teaching was never on my radar. I actually wanted to be an actor um, and left school at 18 thinking I was going to be Olivier uh, and, and very quickly realized there was a very serious flaw in my plan, which was I had no talent. Um, so eventually, after a couple of years of trying various things uh, and, and realizing it wasn't going to happen, I chose to go back to college. In my first year, and I was doing a drama degree and a degree in writing for publication, it was a really interesting amalgam. I met a young girl uh, at the student union who I really, really liked. So I wanted to ask her out on a date. So I did that thing that shallow young men do in student union bars. I asked her what she was doing, what course she was on. She said, I'm training to be a teacher. And so I went, oh, that's, that's incredible. Teaching. I've, oh, I just, honestly, I can't, I admire you so much. It's always been a dream of mine. Anyway, she was a tough North Yorkshire woman who took no prisoners. And for whatever reason, she stuck with me. And at the end of my degree, she gave me a present. And it was really her way of going, I remember. Because what she'd done is enrolled me on a postgraduate teacher training course and said, right, now show me how much you care. So that that's where it all began. I mean, luckily, that um, woman has been my wife for 26 years. So something worked. And she introduced introduced me joking apart to a profession I never would have considered, but the first time I was in a classroom, I truly, truly believed I belonged. Um, and, and that's, I'm not making light of that, you know, it was just an epiphany moment. And I think up until that moment, I'd been treading water as a young person leaving education myself. And the energy I felt in that classroom, that sense of purpose and belonging is something that's never left me. And what about the work you're doing now? What led you to this work? I think my whole career has been a series of happy accidents. So over a period of time, um, I progressed in the system from class teacher to assistant principal and eventually to principal. Um, And I took over a a school in the UK that uh, the government felt was doing so badly they were considering shutting it down. Uh, This was at the turn of the millennium. The only person that didn't know the government were going to consider shutting this down was me because I was the only applicant for the principal's job. And frankly, the fact I was breathing was was enough. So they gave me the job. And um, what happened in the next seven years was extraordinary. Uh, the community trusted me. We, we just had a chemistry. And the extraordinary kids, teachers, parents, the entire community, within 18 months, had turned around the school from being in the bottom 5% in the UK stats to being in the top 5%. 
and the school won awards at UNESCO and various national awards. And what started to happen at that point was people wanted to know what we'd done and the magic. There wasn't really magic, but, you know. So I was being pulled out increasingly to go and tell other people what we were doing. And eventually it was very clear to the people around me, my family in particular, that that just wasn't sustainable. I couldn't be a school principal and tell people about the stuff too. So um, I made a choice, uh, again, driven by my wife. Um, I was procrastinating because she said, you know, there's two options here. One, you stay in the job you love, or two, you go out and try and make it in the world as an author, as a speaker, trying to increase your understanding of leadership and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I was procrastinating and saying, but, you know, that the really I should stay in school. It's a salary, pension, good job. And she turned around uh, to me and said something that I think is really profound. She said, um, for pretty much 20 years, Richard, you've been telling kids to take risks and seize opportunities. She said, are you going to be a hypocrite? And what that meant was you've got to go do it. So that was 11 years ago now that I, I took that step. Um, and the 11 years since, which we might come on to, has been an unbelievable adventure. It's taken me all over the world. It's taken me to work with audiences and organizations way beyond education as well as within education. And the learning that I've had the privilege of um, embracing around the understanding of leadership, human potential, change, the links back into education, um, honestly has been the most incredible privilege. So you talked about Grange Primary School. Yep. And obviously it went through a an extraordinary transformation and people are keen to understand how, what mm. happened, mm -hmm. what did you do and what did the staff do to make that happen in the school? The, the first thing I want to say at this point, it's a very important caveat for people, um, because I remember listening to people like me when I was on the job and thinking, oh, that's just so unobtainable. I don't have that level of wisdom and knowledge. And the truth is, nor did I. It's only in hindsight people sound wise. Uh, what myself and my community were doing was do just doing what we felt was right for our kids and what we assumed everybody did. Um, but it did start in a place where the school had been in, in um, a spiral of decline for about 10 years. They'd had eight principals in 10 years. They'd had no principal for nearly two. Um, and, and what I found when I walked in there was a team of people who, who I think had just had layers of concrete poured on top of them. You know, a school's starting to get out of control, not doing so well. So what happens is people start parachuting in systems and structures and approaches and targets. And, and what happens, of course, is you disenfranchise professional people and they start to that their passion bleeds away, their confidence bleeds away, their desire bleeds away. But they're good people, right? And that had very much happened uh, at the school in the previous 10 years. And I walked in there and I just, you know what, I thought I could do what every other principal's done. And all that's actually going to do is continue the decline. Or... And it's a very privileged position to be in when you take on a failing organization because actually it's much easier to innovate because you've got nothing to lose, right? So that was, in hindsight, an incredibly um, momentous point of luck. So we put a pause on the whole thing and we just started again with really simple fundamental questions. So the first one was, what do we actually want our kids to look like as human beings when they leave us? Not what the government want or the governors or the border control. What do we want our kids? What, and we were talking to parents and we were talking to each other. 
And we just came up with a kind of blueprint of the kind of human being we wanted. And, and we built from scratch again. The next thing I remember saying to my staff, and it was a very profound moment, although it sounds like a crazy question, was now how do we create a school that's as exciting as Disneyland? So in other words, how do you create an environment where kids are prepared to turn up and do tough stuff? Because Disneyland's quite a tough place for kids to be because they have to queue up for hours and hours on end for moments of magic. And that really was where the conversation took us, which was, you know, learning is a really complex thing and actually very challenging because in order to learn, you have to be prepared to fail. And in order to prepare, be prepared to fail, you have to go through those tough moments. Schools cannot be unicorns and rainbows. But how do you create an environment that is so embracing to young people, where they feel so valued and that the, the grain of every experience ends in a wow moment for them? Could we create that and therefore reignite the passion in our community? And that's really how the journey began. And from that, it was about me as a leader setting that groundwork, setting the conditions and the climate, helping the staff to build a vision, and then say, now go and research through action how we can make that happen. And my job as the leader is to constantly say to you, and what's our demonstrable impact? And you talk about serving the people who work with you. Yeah. And I, I'm interested about how do you balance serving the needs of the people who work with you, serving the needs of students, serving the needs of your broader school community? How do you get that balance right? I think for me, it's actually kind of lumping that whole thing together. You know, I, I honestly believe um, that the, the primary responsibility of a leader is in essence to do themselves out of a job. Um, and that, therefore, and it, I know some people bulk at this kind of as a soft, fluffy word, but for me, it is genuinely about empowering the people in your community. And that meant three things, because it was a socially challenging community. I had to make the parents feel that they were empowered, because often in schools in challenging circumstances, the parents are partly the problem, not because they're aggressive or nasty or deliberately destructive, but because they don't provide the 360 balance and support you need to create really active and dynamic emergent citizens, i.e. your students. So we had to embrace the parents. And part of that was to go to them on their ground rather than expect them to come to me on mine. So you do things like hold Q&A mornings and coffee mornings down at the local cafe rather than pulling some of those parents, who, by the way, are often school phobic, into the school. So it was very much a signal for me about, look, I want to understand your community. I don't expect to just layer my middle class values on you. Um, and of course, you win the parents and the families over, their trust grows in you. And the kids actually are often the easiest, particularly in areas of social debt. I've always believed that the greatest kids I've ever taught have come from areas of high social deprivation because those kids just want to be loved and nurtured. And if you give them that and you give them the opportunity and the enthusiasm, you create learning that is both contextual and experiential so it really matters to kids, then they're going to buy in and they'll buy in big. 
And the third then, of course, is the staff. And again, as I said before, rather than going in there and telling everybody what we were going to do, one of the things I'm passionate about is the belief that I don't believe that systems and structures change anything. People do. Now, systems and structures are great, but only if people have a context and understanding of why we're doing this and the impact it can have. So for me, it was very much about that transactional um, relationship with all three elements of, of my community. Um, and being very strong about saying there are non-negotiables here. And that non-negotiable is our, our founding vision on what we want our kids to be like as human beings. And then insisting that parents, staff, and pupils themselves bought in to be prepared to, to develop those principles. Um, and then to, de to design a curriculum that was unique for us, that genuinely met kids at their start point, gave them a context and experience, and then pushed and broadened their horizons through the knowledge and skills we were working on with them. What were some of the challenges along the way? So what, what went wrong or what was harder than you thought it might be? I don't mean this to sound utopian. I think it was a lot easier than I anticipated. You know, there were a number of staff who were deeply scarred and quite negative at first. You know, these were the cynics. I call them the alpha teachers. They're the ones that lurk in the corner of staff rooms, just waiting to take you out. Um, and what was really interesting was I kind of knew that those were the people you had to win over first in a staff room. And I also realized, I think this is something very important for me, that whilst there are awkward and difficult teachers in most schools, and there are definitely a few that really shouldn't be in a classroom. Most of the awkward and difficult teachers are awkward and difficult for a reason, in the same way that a lot of misbehavior amongst students is for a reason. The behavior is just a, a kind of signal. And um, one of the things I truly believe is I don't, think I've, I don't think I've ever met a teacher that chose to become a teacher to deliberately screw up kids' lives. And I also don't think I've ever met a teacher who wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to do a bad job today, right? So the real challenge was getting those cynics to believe this was for real, that I wasn't a fly-by-night, I wasn't going to be there for two minutes, I wasn't going to layer systems and structures on them. I actually wanted to reignite their passion. I'll give you one example, right? So there was one teacher who I would call the supreme alpha teacher. And in this case, it was a man. His name was John. And I remember one day um, being in the staff room and, and really not having the experience or wisdom to know how to deal with John. But, you know, these, these moments occur and, and later you think, thank goodness they did. I went into the staff room and John, as, as a lot of alpha teachers do, was holding court in the corner with his minions um, and doing the usual. And he saw me walk in, right, because I was going in to get a cup of coffee. And he saw me walk in. And so his volume rose, right, and he goes, of course. I never wanted to be a bloody teacher anyway, right? And you go, oh, here we go. This is a show for my benefit, and I'm over making the coffee. He said, um, I blame my father. Oh, my father owned a local shop. It was a little convenience store. He said, I loved that shop. I used to work in it when I was a child. I dreamed as a child at school myself that one day I'd take over the business and turn it into an empire. He said, I blame my bloody father because he was so bad at business, the business went bust before I got the chance to take it over. So I needed something else to do. So I became a teacher. And you just think, uh-oh. Anyway. I went away, I kind of I, I, I kind of 
dwelt on it a little bit. We were starting to look at how we could develop programs in the school where we would match kind of role play and real situations with, with learning. And it was a eureka moment. And a week or so later, I went back to John, called him into my office, and he sat there in that way that these be like, oh, what, what now? What now? What have I done? Um, I said, John, I couldn't help but overhear you in the staff room. The others just, yeah, retail. I know. I love it. I said, well, I've just spoken to the local superstore, and they're running um, a management training course that's a week long on retail management. And I said, I've managed to blag you a, fl- a free place if you want to go, because what I'd like you to do is come back and build um, a shop in the school and then train the children to run it. Well, what was really interesting was his eyes lit up, right? And he went on this course, came back, built this thing. The kids loved it. They adored him for the first time in a generation. And honestly, I promise you, John's entire approach and attitude to what was happening in that school was transformative to the point where by the time I left, he'd been promoted to the position of assistant principal. Um, And so I suppose it was tough, but one of the real lessons for me is that we mustn't just lead by consensus and expectation that everyone has to come to the mountain or the well to drink. And that actually one of the great sophisticated challenges, but also I think one of the greatest um, privileges of leadership is to try and unlock in your staff the same way you would in your kids, the passion, and then to find a way to use that passion to help ignite a greater sense of professionalism and purpose. And so I think for me that was easily amongst the proudest moments of my professional career. And as I say, it's only in hindsight I realised that the, the, the power of what those things really meant. In that school situation, in your school, who did you work most closely with in that process? I imagine to some extent everyone, but were there particular yeah. groups or individuals? Do, do you know, I think this is another really important thing, um, particularly for the buck stopper, the, the, the leader at the top of an organisation, It can be a deeply lonely place. And one of the things I I often have witnessed through my career are really great people in leadership who feel that actually they're paid to bear the burden of that loneliness. And it often leads to stress, mental health problems, and, and ultimately breakdown. And I actually think that that reflects of selflessness there are times when leaders need to be selfish. And that means you've got to have a confidant and not your partner at home, because that doesn't help. You've got to have a a professional confidant. Now, it may be a, a colleague principal down the road or somebody you worked with years ago who you've grown up with professionally in trust. Um, I was really lucky because the the other male in the school was a, a guy called Les, and Les had been teaching in this school for 35 years and was just one of those remarkable experienced teachers who loved it as much on his last day as he did on his first day. And he was wise, you know, and I knew there's a, there's a wonderful African proverb, actually, I heard for the first time the other week, um, an American filmmaker called Rick Stevenson shared it with me. Um, and I think it's, it's really just, um, it's apposite at the moment. He said, is the African proverb is, um, when somebody dies, an entire library burns down. And, and why, the reason I say that is because sometimes I wonder whether we undervalue those deeply experienced teachers who are coming towards the end of their career for their wisdom and knowledge and experience. And I was very lucky because Les instinctively wanted to guide and help. And I used that. So I didn't feel, well, I'm the leader, so my responsibility is to know all the answers. Naturally, I'm going to park that. 
I absolutely knew that he could become the confidant. And also, where I'm quite energetic and, oh, that's a great idea, let's do that, Les, because of his wisdom and experience, is a bit more considered. And so he would challenge constructively my thinking and my ideas. He would also be there to encourage and support me. Um, and I think that gave me a profound sense of confidence and well-being. Um, and, it, and it meant that in those moments where I really didn't know whether to turn left or right, he would be there with an objective eye and an arm around my shoulder. Um, and I think that is invaluable. And I think as the leaders of a top of a chain, we need to remember we all need a Les. Very good advice. Find your Les. Has your idea about what makes a great leader changed over time, particularly in the work that you've been doing? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's it's kind of um, mellowing now in what I'm talking to you about. Uh, I remember when I first got my job as a school principal. I mean, I honestly, my ego was in overdrive because I was quite young to be a school principal. I, and honestly, I walked down the street thinking, do people know? By the way I'm walking, can they tell that I'm now a school leader? It's like, you know, something from Saturday Night Fever in education. Can people tell? You know, as a new leader, I often joke with people that you carry into a, a, a job, your first proper leadership position, two, I think, really important characteristics, but also two really dangerous ones. One, you're arrogant enough to believe you're right. And two, you're ignorant enough to not know what could happen to you if you get it wrong, right? And um, I think I carried all of that baggage into my headship and thought it was about me providing the answers. You know, the things I've already talked to, really, I had to provide the answers. I was the one that I had to solve all the problems. Problems. And I think what happened over the, the first year or so in that school was a growing realization, and I think it comes with the confidence of maturing into leadership, that actually your job isn't to be the boss who just tells everybody what to do, but it is genuinely the idea that the privilege of great leadership is to serve the people who work with you and for you. And actually, in essence, the, grob, the job of a great leader is perversely to do themselves out of a job. You know, for me, great leaders should never try to be the person people depend upon. You actually need to create the climate where people are self-leading, self-managing, um, and, and you're there to steer and support, but you shouldn't be the one that has to control and drive everything that goes on in the, in the school or any organization. And I think for me, that was something that as I grew into my leadership is definitely something that I both mellowed into and bore the fruits of. It was, it was a huge privilege by the end to see a school that was basically capable of running itself. So change and improvement are not necessarily the same thing. How do we know when the change we're leading has the impact that we're actually looking for? I think that's a really interesting and crucial issue around education. The danger with change so often in our school system is we are so under pressure and so committed to trying to do the right thing. We are both seduced by and pressured into endless silver bullets, endless new strategies. You know, people go to a conference like the one I'm at now and they hear somebody and they love what they're saying. Uh, that's the answer. They grab it off the shelf. They take it into school. Their staff oh, go, oh, God, not another one. They put it on top of everything else they're already doing. The skepticism grows. Within days, that new idea is 
hiding in the cupboard full of good ideas that's been building up over 20 or 30 years. And what you do is you lose your staff lose confidence in you. They become um, skeptical. They're exhausted because you're not really talking about change because you haven't got time to truly build a culture of change. What you're doing is just layering new stuff on top of everything else they're already doing. Um, and I think that kind of change is very, very damaging. Um, and it's why so many people in education, I think, when somebody talks about change, they roll their eyes because they're not really hearing change. They're hearing, so you want me to work harder, do you? Um, and I think what's really interesting in, in our space is to realize that actually what we've got to do is not just pursue an endless commitment to making what we're already doing more efficient. That's exhausting. It's reactive. And it's not very cool and sexy. What we actually have to do is provide time and space as leaders in our school systems. If you have a captured and strong vision, is to start to look at how we create a capacity to evolve. So rather than change, it should be evolution. It shouldn't be transformation. It shouldn't be revolution. It should be evolution. You know, back to that old kind of Japanese uh, principle of Kaizen, incremental small steps and small changes. And I think if, if what you do is you build on a vision and you assess and action research your practice and you reference it again against new thinking, but you have the courage to say, no, that's not for us or yes, but we'll tweak it. But actually, if at the heart of that change is a laser-like focus on your vision and values, your principles, then actually what starts to happen is the staff can see an impact of their hard work and their labor. They can see they're actively involved in a change process. It feels more proactive than reactive. And you then create a culture of sustainable change, which actually reflects what should be a 21st century evolving school. So apart from you, who are some of the great leaders in education that you've worked with, worked alongside, watched in the work that you've done? Well, I, I mean, I think for me, it, it's a whole range of people in a whole range of different fields, actually. So one is, is a man called Eric Schmidt, who was the executive chairman of Google until very recently, who talks with real clarity about how difficult it is to lead a successful organization. You know, his point being, when he started at Google, it was this melting pot of creativity and ideas. The more successful they became, the more the focus of their company wasn't on their founding vision, which was to organize the world's information, make it available to everybody, and by so doing, diminish evil. That was dissipated into a fixation with what everybody else was doing. And he said, you know what, when I look at our greatest disasters, they've always come from when we've tried to copy or respond to what one of our competitors is doing, rather than staying true to our vision and values. And he said, and that's been the greatest challenge for me in my time in, in the organization. Another, um, Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, who said to me, you know, Richard, when we, when we set up Apple properly and we realized this was a company that had to go places, one of our commitments at Apple was to recruit and develop our people so that they didn't need managing. Now, that's a heck of a challenge, isn't it? But that's what we've been talking about, that transference of responsibility, power, and trust. And I think one of the things that all of the leaders I've, I've had the privilege to, to see and work with have in common is this idea that they're committed to believing they run an organization on assumed excellence 
excellence. In other words, they truly believe in their community and their people. And what they don't do is run an organization based on assumed incompetence. In other words, my job is to manage everybody up to doing a good job. And actually, they realize that the, the point is to create a culture where that your job is to allow to create the conditions for those people to achieve excellence and only intervene if people fail to do so. Um, and I think those human traits are the really important ones. And of course, I can't, you know, not talk about my personal mentor, my professional dad, who is in the education space, who I know these days is quite a controversial figure with some. Um, and that's Sir Ken Robinson. Um, I met Ken before he became Ken Robinson, uh, Ted Ken, as I call him. Um, and he was an invaluable source of wisdom and expertise to me and support and guidance. And what I think for me, I learned from him was despite the battering and the controversy, his absolute passionate belief in his vision and values for education that would just never be shaken and his intellectual rigor in constantly challenging his own thoughts and practice, I think were the most important lessons in leadership I've learned from anybody. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges in education right now? And if you were back in a school now, where would you be focusing your energy? I think there are so many. I, I actually think the world has turned so far since I left the job 10 or 11 years ago. Um, I think there is so much complexity right now. I think still one of the biggest, and I'm not sure I know a cure to it, is continuous political interference. And I think one of the things we have to do as school leaders is find the courage and strength to, to sometimes just say no you know, and it's a, 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 a really courageous thing to do. But if you have true um, substantive belief in your vision and values and you have your community behind you, that makes that easier. I think that's huge. I think there are, are growing concerns about resources in schools. Um, and I think one of the things we need to do as heads, and again, I can't just wave a magic wand and go, you know, there's more resource. But I think we have to, as school leaders, learn to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. I think we need to go out into our wider, wider community and not just ask for money and stuff like that, but see where talent pools are, to see where skills bases are, see where mutuality of support and learning can take place. I think there's a huge challenge at the moment with the, the explosive rise in social media. And it's something on a very personal level that really troubles me because I do think that things like Twitter and other forms of social media could be some of the most powerful learning platforms in the world. But what I worry about is at the moment, I think they're being hijacked by just a few voices who are actually set about creating a really dangerous and nasty polarizing environment. And um, in my mind, most teachers always have and certainly are now not interested in the daft polarizing debates. They just want to be better at being teachers. They just want to be uh, better at doing a good job. And I would want to find a way as a leader to help filter that conversation, but still use social media for the connectedness and power of, it, of, of what it has as, as a learning tool. And I think the most important thing we've kind of covered really, which is to help my community understand the nature of what positive change can feel like in a sustainable and incremental environment. So the best leaders are, are also lifelong learners. How can we support educators in their leadership journey? What do you see from your work works? 
Yeah, I, again, I think the really important thing is for is for school leaders to allow themselves to be a bit selfish. They are so self, they're so selfless, right? And and one of the things we see in school leaders all the time is the kind of guilt complex about, but I can't be out of school. I can't go. I can't take time out for myself. I've got too much. I need to be seen to be as passionate and working as hard as everybody else. And one of the really important things for me about leadership is if you're to c- continue to generate an evolve a vision, you have to have A, new experiences, and B, you have to have the mental space to be able to to play with those experiences. And so one of the big pieces of advice for me for school leaders is do not feel guilty about spending some time out, uh, you know, meeting a colleague over a cup of coffee away from site, just having a conversation, visiting leaders in other organizations, in other spheres of life, just to see what you can mutually learn from each other, and make sure you give yourself the heads space. Don't jump in to try and solve every single problem because you believe your job is to be the the plug in every hole. So yeah, it's that thing about occasionally really good leaders need to allow themselves to be selfish. And define their les. Yeah, and always to find their les. They definitely need a les, everyone, or a lesette. So you talk a lot about system change. What does that look like? And how do we ensure that it filters all the way down into what's happening in a classroom? I think for me, at the the meta level of, of system in education, we have got too stuck in a loop around trying to make our system work more efficiently. You know, the pressures that we feel as system leaders around the press coverage, for example, from the OECD PISA reports and the relentless feeling that we need to climb some kind of league table in order to show our value. Um, I think we've, we've got too stuck in this loop of putting all our energy into to just making the existing system be more efficient. And I actually think we need to have a greater sense of courage and vision to say, but is that actual system relevant in its current form? to doing what we need to do, which of course is about celebrating learning and just helping kids acquire and develop knowledge. But surely one of the great moral purposes of education is to help provide young people with a sense of possibility in their lives. And that includes preparing them for workspaces and workplaces. And one of the big problems I think we have at the moment is a friction between that efficiency drive versus really getting our heads up and looking at the bigger issue, which is how do we prepare our children for a world that is evolving as fast as it is and is as uncertain as it's becoming. So what's the best way to help people prepare for the future, particularly one that they may not recognise? I think what that's about is not trying to cling on to what we think the future will look like, but to recognise that the future is uncertain. And therefore, what we have to do is help prepare people better to cope with uncertainty. And that means they have to be better, more flexible. They have to be less preconditioned to depending on other people to provide questions, challenges, and then answers for them. So really, it, it goes back to the Wozniak thing, which is how do we create generations of people that can manage themselves? And I think if there's one profound question I would love to think as a result of this podcast that is being discussed in schools tomorrow, it would be that. How do we create generations of students and teachers who don't need managing? If we do that, we don't have to be mystic Meg. We don't have to forecast what the future looks like because we can be sure those people won't just survive in it, but they'll thrive in it. A wonderful way to end our conversation. Richard, thank you very, very much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Basto Educational Leadership Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, why not tell your friends and colleagues and join us next time. You'll find episodes on the Basto website and you can listen or subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.